0: Well, thank you for those very kind words. It is a tremendous privilege for me to be here with you today, just to be a part of this significant celebration, this unique celebration. I do have a a wonderful uh, respect for this church and all that the Lord does here. So, just to be able to participate in your desire to want to honor your pastor for his 20 years of faithfulness, that is a... A special joy. It is an honor for me that is beyond words, really. So I do want to say thank you to the elders for extending an invitation to me to come. So grateful for that. And I want to bring you greetings from your sister church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where I live and minister. I do think of our churches as sister churches. There are many things uh, like, alike And uh, Tom has been to our church, he and Sheila, and has ministered there. And our folks love him as well, and looking forward to having him again uh, next year. So, yes, on one hand, we are here to celebrate the 20 years of Tom's faithfulness in the ministry at Countryside. But even more important, and just as we have sung, and as you've already heard in comments, we are celebrating something even beyond that, and that is the faithfulness of God. It is the Lord who has made Tom's years of ministry here effective, and I know you uh, believe that as well. Now, I do uh, hope you understand that we who are in ministry in Positions of ministry leadership, we continually go back to that very reality that it's all about the Lord and it's about His faithfulness and not about us ultimately. And one of the reasons we go back to that reality is just because of the burdens that we do face as pastors in the ministry. The ministry brings many moments of wonderful joy and fulfillment, but nevertheless, there are burdens related to the ministry. I know that reality in a couple of ways. My father was a pastor, a faithful Baptist pastor for years, and so I grew up in a pastor's home. I saw firsthand uh, and observed the experiences of the pastor and the burdens that he carried and so forth. So I learned it that way. But in God's providence, I became a pastor as well eventually, and I've been a pastor long enough to experience Both sides of all of that, the many joys and yet also the burdens, both sides of that go along with being in ministry leadership. But just to comment further about the burden side of ministry, let me share with you perhaps the the heaviest two burdens that we face, and perhaps the greatest of those two is that we are very aware of the need of our own spiritual growth we are to be growing spiritually ourselves or to put that a different way we're aware of the need to practice what we preach to live in light of the very doctrine that we proclaim and yet at the same time we know that we are dependent on the spirit for that we need his strength we need his power but we know that we have a role in that growth we have a personal obligation. That's true for every believer. We have to put forth, even as pastors, just like anyone else, put forth effort to make personal choices daily to battle the flesh, our unredeemed humanness. And that includes continually putting off Uh, wrong thinking and wrong behavior and putting on right thinking and right behavior in its place as our minds are being renewed by the truth of God's Word. Those are the two sides of spiritual growth, right? There's the divine side and the human side, and both sides are important to all believers. It's just that we as ministers live with this heightened sense of accountability, accountability to the Lord knowing that we are to model that process of progressive sanctification for the congregation. We live daily with the knowledge of that, daily with the knowledge that as we unpack the, the Bible through our preaching and teaching and ministry and, and counseling, that the congregation is listening to our words for sure, but the congregation is examining our walk. So, we have to give attention to our character. We know that ministry is not simply just about what we do, it's about who we are as well. That's a great burden, all of that. And there's another burden that's related to that. It's the knowledge that we don't deserve to be in the ministry or in positions of ministry leadership. We are continually aware of our own inadequacy. In fact, it's not uncommon for a pastor to have moments when he questions his calling. He questions his abilities. It can happen for a variety of reasons. It can happen when the congregation doesn't respond to his ministry in a way he had hoped. It can happen when we invest in the lives of people and we spend much time with someone and then they leave the church can happen in moments when we're just aware, painfully aware of our flesh, painfully aware of our own sin and weaknesses and failures. It can happen in those many moments when we're perplexed, we don't know what to do, we we don't know what's the right thing to do when we're dealing with some difficult ministry issue. And in the midst of all of that, sometimes a a coldness can overtake our hearts and there can be those moments of fear or discontent or doubt. Well, my point in sharing all of that with you, just some examples really of our ministry burdens is just to assure you that we must constantly return to the truth in God's Word, the kind of truth that helps us think rightly about all of this, Truth that helps us then persevere through all the difficult moments, the perplexing moments. Truth that will help us and strengthen us to be faithful. In fact, we visit the kind of truth that we find in our passage for this morning. And that is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. It's in passages like this, 1 Corinthians 3, that we Go to, to be reminded of, of a very basic conviction, and that is that the church and the ministry belongs to the Lord. Ministry is ultimately God's work. You could say it a different way. He's in charge. He sets the parameters. He gets all the glory. So, turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to this passage, 1 Corinthians 3 5 to 9. We're going to find in here that the Apostle Paul, the human author, draws upon the topic of agriculture. Agriculture, which is why I've entitled the message for today, Ministry on the Farm. Now, my father was a pastor, as I said, at least all the years that I knew him before I came along. Uh, I have an older brother and sister that are much older than me. Before I came along, my father did a lot of other different things. One of the things he did, along with my mother, was that they farmed. They were sharecroppers for a while. I think there's something satisfying about knowing that in my heritage and knowing that there was such hard work and diligence required in that. So I appreciate this metaphor, ministry on the farm. But let's set the context for our passage. And to do that, let me just quickly summarize what Paul has addressed so far in this epistle. Now, we're quite aware uh, of the uh, problems, the many problems that were in the church at Corinth. And those problems needed his attention, thus he wrote this letter. There was fleshly division in the church, and that was expressed in more than one way, but one way was the fact that various individuals in the congregation were rallying around particular human teachers. You find a reference to that in chapter 1, verse 12, familiar words where Paul says, some of you are are saying things like this, I'm of Paul or I'm of Apollos or I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. Fleshly division and amid all that party rivalry and fleshliness, there was this problem. There were individuals in the church pursuing worldly wisdom. They had come, become enamored with worldly thinking, and they were even trying to bring it into the life of the church. And that pursuit of, of wisdom just indicated that ultimately they were underrating the message of the cross, the gospel, the message of Christ. So, we find Paul specifically addressing all that quarreling and their divisive spirit in chapters 1 and chapter 2, he cautions them as well against thinking of uh, like the culture that was around them. And then chapter 3, he sums up his concern about what was at the root of all that. There was this, this carnality that was taking over the church. It was carnality that resulted in quarreling and in the, into the, uh, the division into factions And in the fact that some rallied around the men who were their leaders and their teachers. Well, all that sets the stage then for our passage in verses 5 to 9. And it is in these verses that we find him using this metaphor of a farm. You could say it's the metaphor of gardening or it's the idea of, of toiling in a field. And he uses this metaphor to make some important points. Now, like any metaphor that we find in Scripture or any analogy, Uh, they're not perfect in the sense that every single item about one side relates to what's on the other side. In a metaphor, we are using a a figure of speech where two images are shown to be like one another in ways that, that some might not recognize readily, but not everything about the two ideas connects or is presented as analogous. So our passage is using the idea of farming, not to make a point about everything about farming, but just to draw out some resemblances to ministry. So there's a disclaimer about metaphors and analogies. So now with that out of the way, let's look at this passage that represents the kind of truth that pastors like Tom, other faithful men that we know in the ministry, keep going back to, When it comes to how we are to understand ourselves, how we are to understand our leadership positions, more specifically, we're going to find some clarifications as to how the Lord views all that, clarifications as to how the Lord views ministry and leadership. Let me read verses 5 to 9 for us. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to each one, and the idea is giving opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So again, we find here, whether implicitly or explicitly, three clarifications, three very important clarifications about all church ministry and leadership, clarifications just that remind us ministers how important it is that we keep our focus on the right thing, on the Lord, not ourselves. Here's clarification number one. God determines the opportunities. God determines the opportunities. Let's go back to verse 5. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Notice that Paul does not begin with the interrogative pronoun who. We might have expected that. Who is Apollos? Who is Paul? No, what? He intentionally chose this gender neuter term to take everyone's attention away from the person's and to concentrate it on their functions. In other words, the role which leaders have, that ends up being the critical issue. And we could put it this way. He's basically saying, don't don't you know after all what I really am? Don't you know after all what Apollos really is? And verse 5 gives us the answer. They're servants through whom you believed. They are men serving God even as they serve you, even as they serve the church. So the overall function, the overall role is one of servanthood. Now this is, as you might expect, the Greek term diakonos that is used later in a more technical sense in the New Testament of the office of a deacon, It's a general term. It's used in Scripture as well to point to all servants of the Lord. We are all servants in that sense, trying to do the Lord's will. But here it doesn't have the technical sense of the deacon, the office of the deacon. Here in our passage, Paul is using this term to emphasize something about leaders, that leaders are just instruments, instruments in the Lord's hands. So just think about all that we do, even the preaching and teaching of God's Word. It's God's Word, not our Word. At least that's what we're supposed to preach. It's not doctrine that we have come up with or that we wrote or that we created. And likewise, any effectiveness to our ministry is not due to something about us. It's not due to our strength or our power. So in the context of Corinth, Paul understood that about himself and about Apollos and any other leader, that at the end of the day were just instruments and he says through whom others, the Corinthians, came to believe. If you look at Acts chapter 9 verse 15, you find a reference to that about Paul's calling by the Lord. God chose Paul to be just that, an instrument, Acts 9.15. Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. So from the very beginning, Paul had an understanding of that. So on one hand, being a ministry leader, being a pastor, it's a great privilege, it's a privileged position, it's a a role that, that carries some dignity with it. But ultimately, men who are leaders gifted men in the church are simply servants so why does the apostle start this way i think it's because of how the corinthians would have likely written it they would have answered paul with who not what you meant who paul because they were thinking in terms of the person we like apollos we like the way he speaks we we like paul Paul himself just recoils at all that. He says, no, you've missed it. We're we're just the human instruments instruments that God uses to build the church. And there's still more to think about here. Not only do the leaders belong to the Lord, not only do they have different tasks, different roles, and the opportunities to fulfill those roles, all of that is determined by God. And that's confirmed now in the rest of verse 5 even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. So the idea is assignment here. The Lord has assigned each leader the task he is to fulfill. So not only had Paul and Apollos been placed by God in Corinth, God had assigned specific roles to each one of them to fulfill in the ministry there. And the roles God assigns are varied they're diverse in nature. That's true about a farm, right? There's planting, there's plowing, there's fertilizing, there's watering, there's weeding, there's cultivating, spraying, and so on. It's the same way in ministry. There's evangelism, proclaiming the truth to unbelievers, and that's important, but so is proclaiming the truth to believers and teaching them to help them grow. Shepherding people, discipling and counseling people. All of that's called shepherding. That's important. That's necessary. But so is some level of administration. And the point is, God's the one who determines how He's going to use His various instruments in these roles. And not every leader's then called upon to do the same thing, Each one has his appointed work to do. Each one has his God-determined opportunity. And there's a companion thought to all this. Not only do ministers not call themselves to a particular ministry, but ministers don't even create their own giftedness. So take a step back and just think about all that. God has determined where they'll serve, God has determined when they will serve, and God is the one who's given them the abilities necessary to fulfill those roles and all the opportunities that he has created for them. All that summarized in one phrase. This is all about God's sovereignty, but God's sovereignty as it relates to leadership in the church. He's sovereign over all things, and that includes ministry. He determines a leader's skills he determines his ministry opportunities and that is true of tom the bottom line is that god determined his giftedness god was sovereign over his training and god's the one who moved tom and his family here to, to countryside 20 years ago god determines the opportunities Here's a second clarification. God produces the growth. God produces the growth. Now, before making this point, Paul does provide a a few more comments about the sovereignly assigned roles that we've already discussed and the roles that he and Apollos were fulfilling. He says in verse 6 I planted that is a way of saying that Paul was an evangelist. He was a church planter. He was the one that went into Corinth and began to proclaim the gospel in that very pagan city, and there were people who responded to that, and so a church was planted. If you look down to verse 10, he puts it in different terms. He says he laid the foundation. Here he says, I I planted You can find the record of all that in Acts chapter 18. It's a thrilling story, verses 1 to 18 of Acts chapter 18. And by the way, Paul loved that role that God had given him. It was God's determined role for Paul to fulfill. But there's other needs in the life of the church. So verse 6 says, "...Apollos watered the seed that Paul had planted." which in church ministry means that there is teaching that's necessary. and There's shepherding that is necessary in ministry. There is helping those who have believed come to grow in grace, and so Apollos was used by God in that. So, here you have this distinction of labor that existed between the two of them, and and yet they each depend on one another, and that's a good thing because if you plant seeds you, you know somebody needs to water and if you're going to water something you you're thinking there are seeds there both functions are vital and so they're equal they just perform different tasks all of that's just an illustration of God's incredibly perfect and infinite wisdom that he called Paul and Apollos to these different roles and that they're allies they're not rivals in any way But here's what's important. is what's said next in verse 6. But God was causing the growth. It is God's job to bring about the impact that any ministry has. Any of the results go back to him. He's the one that causes the lost to be saved. He causes conversions. He's the one that rescues people from darkness to light. He's the one that causes church growth. And that's all regardless of what instruments he has chosen to use. So just as God sovereignly determines the leadership, including the giftedness of the leadership, just as he has chosen the opportunities that he, they have, he's also sovereign over the results. So think about what that means when the word goes forth and is proclaimed in ministry. God's not sitting in heaven just hopeful. I sure hope this works. I sure hope something happens. He's not sitting in heaven wringing his hands and wondering if his plan's going to work in some way, just watching to see what happens and, and reacting to that. No, he's actively bringing everything about according to his perfect will that was formed in his own eternal mind. So many illustrations of that in Scripture certainly of God's sovereignty, but even, even his sovereign, sovereignty over the results of ministry. I think of the parable of the soils in Matthew chapter 13, those four soils and the seed representing the gospel were spread. And there weren't really results in those first three soils, not real spiritual results, but in the fourth soil, those who are truly saved, God had opened some people's hearts and he brought forth fruit, different levels of fruit, but all that was just God working the results of his sovereignty. Acts chapter 17, the apostle who wrote 1 Corinthians, and before he went to Corinth, you find Acts chapter 17 and he's in Athens and he preaches that great message, you know, in that secular city that... Pagan philosophical city, and it says after that great sermon in verses thirty-two and following that there were different results. Some sneered at him and rejected the truth. Some were saved. Some said, "I, I don't know. I got to think about it some more. I'd like to talk some more about it." It's always been that way. God's sovereign over all that. I love Philippians one six in that regard. I take a lot of confidence in it. It's. How Paul expressed his confidence about the ministry in Philippi, Philippians 1 6. He says, I'm confident of this very thing. And he didn't say, I'm confident of you people. You are so special. He said, I'm confident of this very thing that He, God, the one who started the work, the one who conceived the work, He will perfect it. He's completing it until the day of Christ. It will be done according to his perfect plan. So God himself, according to his own sovereign plan, evokes faith in people who are lost. He causes true believers to change and grow. I like any verse on God's sovereignty. I think my favorite is Psalm 115, verse 3. Ask me tomorrow and I'll probably tell you another one's my favorite, you know, but Psalm 115, verse 3. If you want to be God, you've got to be able to say this, by the way. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. That's God. Back to our text, let me tell you something about the grammar I think is interesting. It's about those verbs planted and watered. They're in a particular verb tense that is a way of wrapping up all the work in just one summary idea and looking at it as completed. But the verb was causing is in a different tense one that indicates God's work goes on continuously. Even if a particular servant's role has ended, even if they're no longer in a particular ministry, even if they've, they've gone to be with the Lord, God's work continues of how he wanted to use that man's ministry. So the point is that our attention then ought to be on the right place, on the Lord. He's the main member. He's the main character in every church. All the ministry roles are important. No ministry role should be minimized, but still everything's in vain unless God does something. Everything is vain unless God intervenes and by his power brings about growth and life. Verse 7, so then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but it's God who causes the growth. That's a statement from the ultimate perspective, of course. He's saying, you know, we count for nothing. I mean, that's very insulting in one sense. And it doesn't mean literally that Paul is literally a nothing or Apollos is literally a nothing. Read this in the context and you understand that Paul is speaking in hyperbole. The idea is put put us next to God. We are just not the most important players. So the various leaders and ministers in the church may have different callings. They have different styles. They have different personalities. They have different abilities. That's true of all your elders here. But they all actually have one common purpose, and that's to fulfill God's will, to be servants of the Lord, instruments in his hand, to fulfill the Lord's will in the particular ministry context here. And God takes that. These leaders who are interdependent on one another, these leaders who complement one another, these leaders who are each contributing something, although toward the same goal of producing a crop, just to use the, the metaphor again, under the Lord's sovereign plan. That's what God is doing. The bottom line point is that ministry effectiveness is not dependent on any particular individual. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need any particular minister. We can never say the reverse, right? No laborer can ever say, I don't need him. I don't need the Lord. No laborer can succeed without the Lord. I like what Rosner said about this, when it comes to church growth, only God has absolute significance. I was reading recently about Luther's answer to someone who asked him about the Reformation and Luther's role in the Reformation, bringing about the Reformation, that sort of thing. I don't remember the exact wording of the question, but Luther refused to take credit for the Reformation. He said something like this, I simply taught, preached, and wrote otherwise i did nothing the word did everything so back to tom and any other biblically thinking church leader tom and any other leader agrees with all that i'm saying that god is the one who gets the glory for any growth he produces the growth clarification number 3 and this one has something to do with accountability being accountable, clarification number three, God evaluates the work. God evaluates the work. Verse eight, now he who plants and he who waters are one. The idea is the laborers being interchangeable. The, The roles are all different and the roles are all important to the task, but they all work together or as Paul says it here, they're all one. And so, again, there, there's not to be any sense of rivalry or competition. That's really uh, absurd. We, we all work toward the same end, and it's, you could put it in prepositional terms. We work with God. We work for God. We work under God. But sometimes I like to say it like this. We may all have different jobs in different cities, different locations, We nevertheless all work for the same company. So, personally, I'm like Tom. I have worked at the same company for a few decades now. I just transferred along the way to a couple of different branches of the company. Right now, I work at a Winston-Salem branch. Tom works at a Southlake branch. We both are conscious of the home office. The home office is in heaven. That's where we get our orders. So that means that even though our churches sometimes will tweak and construct what we call a mission statement, if you get back and look at all the mission statements, we really all have the same mission statement. Because we all work for the same goal. And that's the glory of God. We all work for the extension of the company, the kingdom just different places. But verse 8 continues, and here's where we find this third clarification most clearly. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. You could translate the term reward, you could translate it wages. It indicates that the work done for the Lord is recompensed fully, even though the rewards are not necessarily the same for each of the workers. But here's what's important, it's the term labor. That's drawing attention to the work involved, the hard work involved, and the diligence that goes along in the part of the servant in that work. So the point is that each laborer has been given a a different task in God's field, and as well, each one will receive a separate and appropriate reward for his toil. It doesn't say that they'll be rewarded for their success or the results. It's according to their what does it say? work. The Lord in the home office is the divine evaluator. He assesses each individual servant and his work. He assesses each distinctive contribution And again, it's not the talents, it's not the gifts, it's not the personality, it's the labor. And that puts the least known minister on a level with the most famous minister because for each of them, faithfulness is the key. The faithful, hardworking minister the faithful, hard-working missionary. Let's brought it in church ministry, the faithful, hard-working Sunday school teacher or deacon or helper who labors maybe in obscurity may actually end up receiving a reward far beyond those who by God's will have seen big results. What's the reward? Well, Paul doesn't develop the thought here in our text, so we can't answer that really. We can notice this, it's put in the future tense, so that does suggest that it's a reward on the the day of judgment for believers, not the great white throne judgment for unbelievers, but the day of judgment for believers, what Scripture calls at times the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment of rewards. And of course, we think about that, we don't know how it's going to play out exactly, but we think about it and and obviously I think for, for all of us we'd say, well, when it comes to reward, listen, just to hear the Lord say those famous words is enough for me. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's enough. And that's true. But the apostle does hint at something even more here in this passage. So we'll let it stay where it is, undeveloped here. The conclusion, though, is not undeveloped, the conclusion's clear. God's the one who provides this ultimate evaluation of the ministry efforts. He's taking note of what ministers do. He's taking note of how they do it. He's taking note of why they do it. We're accountable to him. And the key thing is faithfulness in the work. And then verse 9 just concludes it all for us. He wraps it all up and he starts that verse with that little connecting term four four reaches back now and embraces and explains everything of the entire argument and the paragraph just in one concise statement for we are God's fellow workers you are God's field even God's building that brings to a close all that we have seen God's the singular focus I do like the the grammar here um Sometimes in our English translations, we we have to make it fit our understanding of syntax and the way we hear things. But but literally, God is emphasized here. It's, It's really something like this. God's fellow workers we are. God's field, God's building are you. A little bit like Yoda, maybe, when he speaks, but Paul wrote it that way on purpose just to emphasize, everything belongs to him, the church, the ministry, the workers, everything. It's interesting that he then suddenly inserts this new metaphor. It's the figure of a building. He hasn't said anything about that, but he does in what's coming up in the next few verses. So, by inserting that, he, he now has opened the door using an architectural metaphor now, to set up what's going to be developed in the the next few verses. So I was thinking about that because I love these next few verses. Don't have time for it today. But I was thinking maybe about Tom's 40th anniversary. (laughs) I don't know. Don't want to invite myself, but I'd be willing to come back on his 40th and do that next passage. I'll let you know what nursing home I'm in and... (laughs) and, uh, see if I can come. I know that Tom is encouraged by really everything that's taking place today and humbled by it as well. He's encouraged by your expressions of love, your expressions of gratitude. It is biblical to do that, to show that kind of appreciation. You know, like we find in Romans 13, 7, give honor to whom honor is due. You should be thankful to Tom for Tom, and you are. You should honor him, and you're doing that. And so many reasons why. I know about him the same things you know. He is knowledgeable of the Scriptures and theology. He is a gifted expositor of God's Word. People ask me sometimes, whom do you like to listen to? What preachers do you admire the most? And I think they have certain names that they're expecting me to say. And this is is absolutely true what I'm saying every single time I say actually Tom Pennington's first on my list of whom I like to listen to because of his clarity and his accuracy because he's proven himself to be a diligent worker the list goes on and on of why he should be honored not to mention the fact that he's so good looking and I know you agree that Sheila deserves honor as well. She has faithfully served alongside Tom, and, and I know this to be true about her. She loves this church so much. You are blessed that the Lord transferred the Penningtons from one branch of the church to this one, to Countryside 20 years ago. And Tom and Sheila both know that the celebration of their faithfulness is in reality a recognition of God's faithful work here at Countryside. So I think it's appropriate that I just read this verse in closing to draw all our hearts to remember our greatest allegiance is to Christ, Colossians 1.18. He is also the head of the body, the church. He, Christ, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place, in everything let's pray father we pause once again to give thanks for your goodness to us to save sinners like us and then even beyond that to use us in ministry what a benediction that is to our lives so i thank you for tom all that you've done in his life to draw him to christ to open his heart to believe i thank you for training him and gifting him and I thank you for all that you've used him to accomplish through the years, and I thank you for him and Sheila and their girls for the fact that you moved them here 20 years ago and all that you're still doing. We give you the glory for it in our Savior's name. Amen.